0: Thank you for downloading this Desenio podcast. For more information, visit com. We hope you enjoy the programme. My name is Ollie Stratford, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Desenio magazine. The topic of today is familiar spaces, which I suppose we can break down a little bit into two main areas we're looking at. I think... The first part of it is we're interested in what this idea of sensing a space is and different ways in which one can interact with a space, analyze a space and be in a space. And then the other side of that is to look at a little bit what happens when a sense of familiarity enters into that, when spaces in very disparate places begin to become familiar and similar and understand why that might be and how you can react to that. So... I'm very quickly going to introduce our panel for today. There's more information on the printouts if you want more details, but I think it's best to get through. So, on my right, we have Holly Lewis, the co-founder of We Made That, which is an architecture practice exploring ways in which urban development can take place through socially engaged design processes. Then we have Luca Picardi, a designer and the author of a really marvellous text. I recommend seeking it out on his website, Familiar. Uh, which is a research project supported by the British Council and uh, Helsinki International Artist Program, examining the familiarity of disparate urban redevelopment projects. To his right, we have Maria Gasparian, who's a ceramic design artist and architect, and the 2016 Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Fellow, um, who took part in residency exploring the manufacturing of architectural ceramics and their application in public spaces. To her right, we have Professor Johanny Belazma, an architect, educator, theorist, a uh, former professor of architecture and dean at the Helsinki University of Technology and author of The Eyes of the Skin, Architecture and the Senses, which hopefully at least some people here will be familiar with. And then finally, we have Kate Goodwin, the Head of Architecture at the Royal Academy of Arts and who curated uh, Sensing Spaces, an exhibition not so long ago, which again, I fully recommend researching and finding out a little bit more about. It was a wonderful show. So, to begin with, I think we need to set out a little bit what it means to sense a space. I suppose we're in the territory of phenomenology. And Professor Pelasmer, I wondered if you could start us off by giving a little bit of an overview of what that might mean, what we mean when we talk about sensing a space and different ways of sensing a space.
1: I believe that uh, during the next two or three decades, we better go back to um, biology and uh, evolution and uh, understand ourselves as evolutionary beings. Uh, Eduardo Wilson, the uh, world's leading myrmecologist, uh, uh, scholar on ants, and um, the man who has established uh, biophilia the love and science of life, he has a sentence where he says, the greatest problem of man is that he doesn't know who he is and do not know either what he wants to become. Uh, that's why we need to understand ourselves as biological beings, and as biological beings, we are part of the world. We seek to be part of the world and uh, that takes place through the senses uh, in a uh, amazing coordination of uh, not only the five aristotelian senses but uh, but primarily our sense of being for me the notion Merleau-Ponty's notion the flesh of the world has become very important it's the a perfect way of expressing that we are not separate from the world, we are not separate from the space. When we enter a space, the space enters me, and there's an immediate exchange. Architecture and art are always exchanges. Those works give us something, and we give them their meaning through our understanding of ourselves in that space
0: how do you begin to unpack some of those ideas within the sphere of architecture and urban development? Because I suppose it's been very tempting historically to look at things like the city as something that very much um, separates people from the natural environment and from this sort of biology discussed. It's Traditionally, almost seems like a little bit of a framework which blocks off some of those considerations. So how can you begin to factor in uh, that notion of sensing, which you've discussed, into the built environment? How does it enter in? Um, Kate, maybe this is something you'd like to come in on because you, I suppose, looked a little bit at some of these issues in sensing spaces. How how can you begin to have that dialogue within architecture? Yeah.
2: Um. I do think it's a complex thing. I think that was really what we tackled with the architects. You know, it was a very broad um, brief I gave them and worked very closely with them to try and make, essentially to make people more aware of the spaces that they were in. And I guess it really builds off everything Johanny has said about, I think, about a sense of presence. You know, how, how do people move through, through their environment and it doesn't just become background, but actually starts to enrich what we do, give us a sense of what our being is, Um, and I think what we tried to do was I think it was about a sensibility of what it is to physically occupy a space and I think there's something that comes out of this which is we don't all sense or experience the world in the same way Um, so I think there is no single prescription about it Um, but it's understanding I think um, what does make it pleasurable um, how spaces become comfortable to be in um gives a sense of comfort challenge us are inspiring and i think that there's something about yeah a physicality that's important
0: is that something which you have to be conditioned to engage with Do, do people naturally engage with spaces in that way or is it something that requires Um, a a, a form of training in some form is that the base state for interacting with the space
3: i think that sounds very dangerous doesn't it sound patronizing (laughs) we have to teach you how to be in the world and to understand the amazing things that you could never possibly understand if we didn't teach you um no i don't i don't think so (laughs) um i think that um what we're really interested in in our practice is being normal human beings as well as being architects and trying to understand how normal human beings understand the city. Um, I, I don't think that it's a kind of highly conditioned way of thinking and I think there's a danger of becoming too abstracted from normal experience of walking down the street or walking through a public space and, and understanding um, how people feel about that experience and why they might feel it. Um, and I think that that does have something to do with the physical kind of senses, but I think there's also an intellectual uh, thing that's going on there. Um, We've just done a bit of research looking at high streets in London, and the (laughs) level of articulation and sort of putting together of jigsaw puzzles of what's going on around those high streets, that you can have that conversation with anybody about this is a place that you know very well, this is your local high street, and they're able to explain kind of macroeconomic factors that are uh, manifesting themselves on their high street. These are things that we all do and I think there's a real danger as architects that we sort of <sighs> rarefy it mm. and actually it's just people in the city and
0: uh, that's how we try to approach our work. You've stressed the need not to rarefy it and to adapt, adopt this human approach. How do you handle then so many different perspectives, so many different subjective interactions with a space? How do you kind of, I mean Jigsaw is a good uh analogy for it maybe how do you begin to try and knit those things together
3: i think it's really tough i think actually just having been around this development i think it shows how tough that is so i'm not sure how much space there is for difference and different interpretation in some of those spaces that we came through they're kind of very manicured and very lovely and the plants are all green and and there's no weeds like i was quite they saw this bed like actually that's quite nice there's you know whatever there's some flowers and some guys <laughs> playing basketball, and uh that bit of informality and the opportunity for things not to be controlled, um, I think, is a difficult thing to design for.
0: Are these ideas around phenomenology, are they a way of designing and a way in which an architect ought to be working? Or are they a description of how we interact with spaces? What exactly is going on there? What's being suggested by these ideas of pushing experience to the fore? Yeah.
4: Um. This morning we were discussing with Professor importance of empathy uh, in designing and I think every designer should have a duty of care obviously how one designs. It's very dangerous to be too prescriptive just as you said a minute ago. Um, What one should try and do is to do your best to be empathic to um, what you try to express and to people who are going to be using space. So in a way, you have to embody what would be this experience that one could have walking down the street, being part of a landscaping, whether it's a park, whether it's a bench that you sit on. Everything that you do, I think we all have responsibility as designers. A, not to impose our ego on it, but be empathic. I think it's really the crucial ingredient to uh, create something that is successful for other people.
0: It seems as if being empathic is something that should come... Uh, naturally, and that any architect and designer should be doing as a matter of course. But is, is something, uh, Professor, perhaps you could explain a little bit what you mean by empathy and how you see that factoring into design.
1: Uh, I do not think that it's possible to design an uh, architecture or, or even design objects uh, from a purely formal criteria or an intellectualised idea or a concept. <clears throat> you have to internalise the whole whole issue and you have to live live with it. Um, architecture, not to speak of urban context, is so complex that so so complicated so multi fact, factured that um, it cannot be really understood intellectually or even theoretically. You have to live it. And uh, when uh, using drawing uh, as your design tool, you are not really focusing on the drawing, but on the immaterial experience that you imagine. So the whole operation takes place in real life, although imagined life. So how do you look at something like
0: a a new large-scale development like this? How easy is it to design on that scale um, empathetically and not lose sight of the way in which an individual might be interacting with that space? I mean, Luca, maybe this is somewhere you could come in a little bit because your research was looking at these kind of new developments in part. So how do you see that challenge of working on a project
5: like that? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not an architect, uh, I'm, I'm merely just a designer, so I'm not kind of involved in the deep kind of craft of architecture, so I can just come at it more kind of holistically, but I think um, Holly was making a good point about sort of prescriptiveness in architecture and how you, you want to try and stay clear from this, and I always think of um, the Centro Storico in Genova, Liguria, in Italy, where my family are from. Um, which is this kind of network of medieval alleys. And there you really have to kind of rely on your um, senses. You have to be very much alive and conscious, alert. And these kind of alleys will lead you to, you know, amazing piazzas out of nowhere. And there's no kind of manicured aspect to this. Um, And with a lot of these new developments, it feels like you're kind of uh, traveling through a preconceived path, a very kind of linear journey where there's not much to discover so maybe adding that sort of element of mystery could be one way of approaching it
0: I wonder if in part there's an issue around uh, the media as well and the way we look at new architecture and new developments I mean something we struggle with on the magazine sometimes is um when you're assessing a new project, it's when it's just opened, for instance, before it's had a chance to sort of operate in any way. And that's a real challenge, understanding when you should begin to look at something and where when is a fair time to begin a sort of critical assessment. Particularly, I, I know we've covered a number of projects which are built more as community developments, community centres in whatever form. And it feels very challenging knowing how you begin to scrutinise an environment like that, what is the point at which you begin to analyse it? Because at least in a lot of publications, there's an urge to, you know, publish early, to sometimes even press previews, which are before a space has even opened at all. (laughs) So I wonder if anyone um, on the panel, it it would be useful for me and interesting for me to hear how you think we should... be scrutinize the space how you begin to offer some analysis of it because so often it feels as if the narrative of an environment is written before it's even had a
1: chance to take off <laughs> i think it's a big mistake uh, uh, nowadays and has been for a long time to see architecture and art as uh, self-expression of the author uh, as an architect i would and designer it would. It is an intolerable idea for me to think that somebody would be living uh, in my emotions, my expressions. No, not at all. I have to be very emotional and subtle and sensitive during the process of design. But before I'm finished, I have to pull everything of mine out of that uh, equation. And primarily, I think, uh, as um, Merleau-Ponty Uh, also beautifully writes, we come not to see a work of art, we come to see the world according to the work. I think this is a precise uh, description of what art and architecture uh, needs to catch. That is some understanding of the world in which we live and some sensitization of our relationship with with the world
0: I'd like to move us a little bit onto um, I suppose the second half and looking at this notion of familiarity and I mean Luca and Maria both of you undertook Residencies, which I suppose in some ways you can look at as engaging with the specificity of spaces and having that very active engagement as part of your practice. So I wonder if you can talk us through those projects a little bit and set out the work you did and some of the conclusions you found from them. I mean, Maria, I don't know if you want to go first.
4: No problem, of course, yeah, yeah. Well, I start by saying what we talked about with Professor this morning again, it's going back in time. And how important it is to um, appreciate what we already have as a, there is no blank canvas, as you were saying. The um, new developments are really difficult to create. It's very, very difficult to start with blank canvas. But uh, we all love medieval cities and they are beautiful because they've been created in a long process of long time. And there is a logic to them why they are like that. Why all the crooked pla- uh, you know, roads go to the central square? Because it was a marketplace, because people went shopping there. You know, th- it was a place to meet together. So all of these things have a logic to it. And in my travels, I was very, very fortunate. I went to travel um, in Europe and USA this summer. And uh, I had a very specific project. I was looking at architectural ceramics in uh, public spaces and also manufacturing of ceramics but this was very much linked with the urban fabric of the cities that I visited. And that was my personal interest. Why ceramics? Because lots and lots of cities in Europe and America are built out of clay. And it's very basic material that actually creates the built environment. So, um, I was looking at the, uh, ceramics and trying to understand what makes public spaces different in these places that I visited. Um, and also what are the similar similarities and the, um, uh, things I discovered were absolutely fascinating because, of course, ceramic being very clay, being very very traditional material, it is present everywhere, almost in every country in the world. Uh, people use it locally; they use it in a very local way. So there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of site specificness about how people use clay. I mean, in in Holland they make bricks and they put in a particular Flemish bond. <laughs> in uh, you know in Portugal they paint beautiful colours on them and put it in the buildings. In UK, it's different. So every possible place I visited, it had a sense of locality. It had a sense of site-specificness. Yet, there was a lot of um, similarities in it. And what was really interesting is that uh, there was a lot of connection, cultural connections through the trade, through the culture interchange, also sometimes through the conquest of one nation by the other, why things look different and why they look the way they look in particular places.
0: And Luke, what did you find? Because you're examining London and Helsinki and the research document is titled Familiar, which suggests a certain conclusion. Maybe you can
5: talk us through that a little bit. Sure. Um, I think it's it's really interesting that Maria is looking at it from a different perspective, which is a lot more granular on the materials. Um, For me, it was more a kind of exercise in pattern recognition um, among different development sites. Uh, So kind of the project grew out of um, various kind of walks I'd been doing around London in a lot of development projects, exploring kind of the blurring boundary between privatization and privately owned public space. So I was looking at kind of Nine Elms, Cardinal Place, um, Broadgate and uh, King's Cross. And so when I was given this residency in Helsinki, I kind of started to uh, explore some of the new neighborhoods that had been emerging there, such as Yakasari and Kalasatama, and noticed how they were almost extensions of these spaces for me on a, on a personal level. Um, so I kind of wanted to zoom out a bit and peel back the layers a bit more. So I extended this study into cities across the kind of Baltic North Sea Basin. But I think what what we've kind of reached now is this obviously post-industrial time where all of these industrial sites no longer have any kind of use. So they're being termed as brownfield sites. Um, and, you know, it's, it seems that we're on the cusp of this kind of uh, like hyper commercialization um, to some extent, which is being propelled by the Internet, I think, to some extent. And this is something that uh, Kyle Shaker talks about. He talks about these kind of airspace as uh, it's the realm of kind of bars, cafes, um, co-working spaces, co-living spaces, startup offices. Um, you know, we've just been to the caravan to meet up there, and that coffee shop could have been kind of in Beijing. It could have been in LA. It could have been in Helsinki. Um, and it's got the kind of visual cues we can familiarise ourselves with. You know, it's got the the flat whites, uh, the hanging lights, the sort of uh, reclaimed wooden furniture. Um, and the hanging greenery, uh, and I guess this has been kind of propelled by Pinterest mood boards and you know Instagram images, um, so which are kind of producing a harmonisation of our tastes. Um, and the interesting thing about this is that it's kind of decentralised. It's it's not kind of authorised by like a corporate mandate. It's it's actually independently loads of people like the same things. Um, so when we see spaces like Kings Cross, it's it's kind of already familiar to some extent. You know, you have your um, you have your plazas, you have your brands that you're familiar with, um, and I think this is also kind of a conscious effort from you know big companies today. You know, Airbnb say belong anywhere as their kind of slogan. Um, so it's kind of you know we want to take our homes with us and already familiarise ourselves with things. I mean, when I last used Airbnb, I was looking into you know houses in different cities, and there's this kind of new, almost Airbnb aesthetic, which has arisen, um, kind of extensions of IKEA showrooms. Um, so I think we're kind of potentially reaching maybe like this sort of context where there is no context in a, in a weird way. How do you think we should react to that? Is that a point to be critical of? Because I suppose, uh,
0: okay, an extremely charitable interpretation of it, you could look and say, well, it's the result of internationalism or something, which is typically seen as a good thing. Certainly Airbnb, whether you buy into it or not, does bill it as this, be a local anywhere type experience. Is it, how should you look at that kind of uniformity, that almost space seemingly stripped of specificity is it an impoverishment of the environment or is it just uh, something inevitable in the current climate in which you need to work with and try and find something interesting about how should we respond to that kind of neutral space the air space as you have it
3: I think it I think it depends if that's all you have doesn't it because I actually I don't mind it. I, I, if I'm in a new place and there's somewhere with a flat white that looks half decent and and it's got a bare bulb, okay, well I'm probably safe. <laughs> uh, but I would hate for everything to be that. If there's space for that and space for other things that's, I think, what's important in our cities and um, I think that's what worries me about the sort of comprehensive nature of some of the development is that it just irons out all of that, the shed where the guy does his MOTs and where somebody invented something amazing and then went and made a company like whatever Brompton always gets quoted as the amazing thing that happened in London and then employs millions of people um if there's no space for something disruptive or cheap or messy then that's when the city's impoverished I don't think it's impoverished by a flat white but if it's only flat white that's when I'm worried and I think that's why we think for example high streets are so exciting because they've they're so difficult and annoying and they've got like 50 different owners and each one of those plots is only this big. And so it's impossible to wrangle them into one kind of homogenous, everybody marching in the same direction because they've got these sort of prickly edges that make them difficult to um, bring into line, which is frustrating and great. And I think that's what cities are overall, but that's what scares me about the kind of really massive big development plans is that it irons out difference and makes our cities normative and i think that's that's an impoverishment
1: i think it's very clear that we are living in an era that uh, uh, promotes standardization and similarity simply we are so uh fundamentally dominated first by rationality which of course rationality doesn't have a place or, I- or even identity that's definition of rationality then uh mobility, uh, technology. Technology is the same everywhere. Uh, uh, then uh, also uh, our values, uh, habits of life, everything are becoming more and more similar. And most of all, we are living in a in a world of uh, worldwide commerce. We are living in a world where Huge banking operations are uh, made in 10,000th uh, of a second. And it, these banking operations are possible only because uh, we are able to uh, fragment time, you know, uh, to such degree. I, I think it is uh, inescapable in a way that the world becomes uh, standardized, the same sameness. But at the same time, I started by referring to the biological uh, reality. Uh, there are no monocultures in the living world. We are on our way to the global monoculture. That's uh, entering a really dangerous, Im- I would say impossible uh, road biologically and ecologically. To the end of our time. Uh, so, I'd like
0: to just thank again the British Council and the Finnish Institute in London, as well as the Open Senses Festival. And I hope you'll join me in thanking the panelists for their time and expertise, too. You've been listening to a Desenio podcast. For more podcasts, visit decenniadaily.com.